Hello and welcome to the November 2020 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and today I'm going to be joined by Nick Brinton and Lawrence Hargrave for an update on all things related to professional trustees. We're using some new software to record the interview today, and it is pretty close to Halloween, but hopefully we won't run into any gremlins. Sorry. Anyway, first things first, it's news time. The pensions regulators issued some guidance this month for trustees and sponsors of DB schemes who are considering commercial consolidators or super funds. This supports the guidance issued by TPR for super funds themselves back in the summer, and together these reflect the interim regime that TPR is going to use to regulate super funds while we wait for the proper legislation. More on that later on. The new guidance gives a bit more detail on what's being called the gateway test. So trustees should only consider transferring to a super fund if they have no realistic prospect of buyout in the foreseeable future, and any transfer must improve the likelihood of members receiving full benefits. There's also a focus on the need for detailed assessments of both the buyout deficit and the employer covenant. While TPR will be doing their own assessment of super funds before allowing them to take on business, they still expect trustees to do some due diligence, including analysis of other options, member outcomes and key risks. TPR are also encouraging any schemes considering a super fund transaction to appoint an independent trustee if they don't have one already. As I mentioned back in July, capital-backed investment solutions like LNG's insured self-sufficiency offer are also covered by this guidance. These retain a link to the existing sponsor covenant, so TPR has some extra things for trustees to consider here, including what happens if the sponsor becomes insolvent. Sponsors will be expected to provide support to the trustees in this process, including meeting advisor fees, and they'll also be responsible for applying to TPR for clearance. TPR have said clearance needs to be obtained at least three months before the transaction date, although they expect to be informed much earlier in the process. The PPF has published its consultation on the calculation of the 21-22 levy, which will be payable in the autumn of 2021. We'd normally have expected a full review of the levy methodology, setting the rules that apply for the next three years. However, the PPF wants to retain a bit more flexibility to make changes over the next few years as the impact of COVID-19 becomes clearer. There are relatively few changes proposed for the 21-22 levy, as the COVID impact won't really start to feed through in this year due to the way the underfunding and insolvency risk are measured. Around 90% of schemes can expect to see a reduction in their levies compared to the previous year, although the actual impact is going to vary significantly by scheme. The biggest winners will be smaller schemes, who will benefit from a new tapering approach, and those with either high underfunding, high insolvency risk, or a combination of the two, who will benefit from a reduction in the cap on the risk-based levy. The other major change this year is the move from Experian to Dun & Bradstreet to calculate insolvency risk scores, but we've known about this for a while and there are no real surprises here. Now we have the draft determination, schemes can start estimating their own 21-22 levies to see what kind of impact the changes will have for them, and consider what kind of mitigation actions might be appropriate. As usual, the deadline for completing most of these actions will be the 31st of March. Looking further ahead, the PPF is expecting bigger changes for the 22-23 levy year, when the COVID impact will really start to feed through, and there's a warning that levies are likely to increase at that point. They'll be keeping a close eye on how well their insolvency risk model holds up over the coming months, and they're also planning to review the way investment risk is reflected in the levy calculation, with a consultation expected towards the end of next year. The Continuous Mortality Investigation has published a consultation on the 2020 version of its mortality projections model. The CMI model was first introduced in 2009 and it's been fairly robust since then, but it wasn't really designed to cope with the kind of scenario we've seen this year. 
One of the difficulties here is that if this year's events do lead to a change in future mortality improvements, it's actually quite difficult to say which direction that change would be in, let alone how big it would be. While the number of deaths earlier in the year was much higher than expected, some of these may be people who would otherwise have died in the next few years, meaning we could see lighter mortality than expected over that period. Looking longer term, we could have a recession which harms future mortality improvements, but the increased focus on health and social care caused by the pandemic may actually mean we see an increase in spending in these areas, which would be positive. The CMI's view is that if they just incorporate the data from 2020 with no adjustment, the model will produce unrealistic falls in predicted life expectancy. So to deal with this, they've proposed placing just no weight at all on data from 2020, which seems like a sensible option given the circumstances. I think the key thing to take away from this is that setting mortality assumptions has now become even more complicated than it was before. And any schemes who need to do this in the coming year or even the next few years will need to take extra care to consider all of the relevant factors. Now, I know pensions tax is everyone's favourite subject, so just a couple of quick updates on that front. You may remember that a few months ago, the Public Accounts Committee called on HMRC to investigate whether pensions tax relief was really effective in encouraging people to save for retirement. The Treasury's now rejected this suggestion, stating that it doesn't think it is the right time now for a formal evaluation, but it has said that it will continue to engage with stakeholders to understand the regime's impacts and gather evidence through consultations. On a related note, I'm sure you'll have seen that the autumn budget was cancelled. This had been widely expected to set out tax changes to help recoup some of the costs of the coronavirus pandemic, but in the face of a second wave, the Treasury decided now was not the right time. This probably means we can look forward to a second spring budget in a row next year, so I'd guess the speculation about changes to pensions tax relief will start to ramp up again around Valentine's Day. Who said romance was dead? Pensions Minister Guy Opperman spoke at the PLSA conference this month. The biggest headline was that he expects a second pensions bill to be introduced during the life of the current parliament. This would include, drumroll, the long-awaited legislation on super funds. See, I told you I'd come back to it. However, that will have to wait until the current pension schemes bill has made it over the line. This is currently with the Public Bill Committee, who will scrutinise it line by line before reporting back to the House of Commons. Interestingly, the committee have issued a fresh call for evidence from the industry, which is an unusual step at this stage of a bill's progress. They're meeting to discuss this in early November, so we should know if anything new has come out of this by next month. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. Professional trustees are becoming an increasingly common sight in the UK pensions industry. They've already got one mention in today's first news story, and the Association of Professional Pension Trustees has just put out a new code of practice for professional corporate sole trustees. Today, I'm joined by Nick Brinton and Lawrence Hargrave to talk about this and professional trusteeship more generally. So thanks for calling in today, guys. Before we get started, can I just ask you to briefly introduce yourselves? Absolutely. Good afternoon, Ricky. My name is Nick Brinton. I'm an investment consultant and I lead the professional trustee strategy team at Aon. I also am in charge of taking our smaller delegated solution to market. Hi, Ricky. Uh, thanks for having me on today as well. My name is Lawrence Hargrave. I'm an actuary at Aon and I also co-lead along with Paul McGlone our thinking on sole trusteeship as well as working with Nick in relation to professional trustee relationships more generally. Great. So, Lawrence, I guess you're the, the man for this first question. Just wanted to ask about this new code of practice for sole trustees. What are the key highlights there? Thanks, Ricky. As you mentioned, the, the Association of Professional Pension Trustees issued this code last week, with its primary purpose being to address some of the specific challenges that face sole trustees, as opposed to general good governance principles that are relevant to all trustees. It's a voluntary code. It is principles-based. 
and it is a first version, which will undoubtedly evolve over time. But to my mind, there are three key takeaways. First, the code recognises that for a sole trustee, all material decisions will need to be made by at least two accredited professional trustees. This goes to reinforce that only firms who are sufficiently resourced to manage such decision-making should act as a sole trustee. And in particular, individual sole traders cannot act as a sole trustee. In tandem, firms will need to document their policies on diversity and inclusion, and a key part of this will be having diverse views and challenges in decision-making processes. Second, the code is very clear on the level of due diligence expected in the appointment of sole trustees. In particular, the sole trustee will need to understand why it has been appointed and also why a sole trustee has been put in place. And further, when a sole trustee is removed or resigns, it should consider whether any matters relating to the removal or resignation need to be brought to the attention of the pensions regulator or the incoming trustees. All this goes to help ensure that sponsors cannot just hire and fire trustees at will and helps reduce some of the concerns around conflicts of interest. And thirdly, and more generally, there's a clear indication throughout the code that transparency and thorough evidencing are required. And this is including in relation to negotiations with the sponsor and to the appointment and review of advisors. Of course, as I mentioned, this is a voluntary code. So seeing how it is complied with in practice will be very important. But I think it is really positive and a really positive set of principles that will help provide industry-wide confidence in sole trusteeship as this market grows. Thanks, Lawrence. So, Nick, long-time listeners may remember you gave us an update on professional trusteeship back in July 2019. What other changes have we seen since you were last on? Yes, good memory, Ricky. Um, there's three, I think, key changes that we've seen in the past 12 or 14 months. The first one is the sheer number of new entrants to the professional trustee arena, mainly joining, actually, the professional trustee firms. In a straw poll, that we carried out earlier this week, we found that a total of 54 professional trustees had joined the top 10 firms in the last 12 months. If you then add in the support staff and administration, this figure almost doubles. We've also seen a couple of new firms spring up as well as partnerships. I can think of three actually in the last three months alone. We've also seen the PT accreditation process land and seen a number of professional trustees take the two papers, those being theoretical and soft skills papers, and becoming signed off by the PMI or the APPT, the Association of Professional Pension Trustees. And then finally, we've really seen a change in intent from sponsors when they look at professional trustees. Four to five years ago, the dish of the day was very much our chair, deputy chair, or one of our crucial co-trustees is retiring, we need to bring in a professional trustee to replace them. Whereas now, sponsors are thinking much more about the wider piece and why they need to bring in that particular professional trustee. So you mentioned an influx of new professional trustees there. What do you think is driving that particular change? I think there's a number of reasons. The first one was the regulator involvement. So the pension regulator released a, a consultation paper in 2019 looking at whether a professional trustees should sit on every board. Now, while that didn't go through, it gave a very clear articulation to the market that this is the way the TPR is thinking. The second thing is schemes are getting closer to their end game. In the Aon Global Risk Survey of 2019, we found that on average, DB schemes in the UK are around 9.4 years away from their end game, be that consolidator, insurance solution or self-sufficiency. 
These are often complex transactions that often require specialist knowledge, hence the bringing in of a professional trustee. And another current example is COVID. We took our risk analyzer, which is our liability measuring tool for all our pension DB in the UK, and rebased the liabilities to the 1st of January of this year and ran them through to the 30th of September. And it was no surprise to find that those schemes that are either underhedged or possibly undiversified were deteriorating by roughly around 7% or between 7 and 3% on a liability basis. That said, there's also good news in that a number of well-hedged schemes have seen their funding increase by circa 3%. But it's those schemes now where the trustees and sponsors are thinking, do we now need to look at a governance solution? And then finally, I believe, is the overseas parent, especially we're seeing in the cases of the United States and mainland Europe, we're seeing those head offices are getting quite a lot of comfort from bringing in a professional trustee in the UK. Okay, so we've clearly got a growing market here. If I was either a trustee or a sponsor sort of looking to appoint a professional trustee, what would you say are the key points I'd need to think about? Well, I think to begin with, it's really important to recognise that appointing a professional trustee or a sole trustee is a big step to take for your scheme. So consider it very carefully. Understand why you want to make such an appointment and whether it provides the right governance structure for your scheme. If you do decide that appointing a professional trustee or a sole trustee is the way forward, preparation is vital. Set out what are the key attributes you want from your professional trustee and the key outcomes you want from the appointment. For example, in one case we have seen, which was sponsor-led, the sponsor wanted to move more quickly with the trustees on liability management exercises and GMP equalisation with an eye towards achieving buyout in the medium term. They considered what governance structure would be best suited for this, decided sole trustee would work best, drew up criteria for the role, and then carried out a selection and interview process to hone in on which firm best fitted the role requirement. In another case, which was trustee-led on the other hand, the trustees felt that they had strong technical skills already, but they sometimes struggled to reach consensus and make decisions. To address this, they decided that appointing a new professional trustee who would need to have boardroom experience and would work alongside the current trustees as chair would really help to pull the trustees together, facilitate more robust decision-making and provide a more coordinated approach when negotiating with the sponsor. Now, these are just two quite different examples and there are many many reasons why you may wish to appoint a professional trustee but overall i would say understand the governance options available for your scheme possibly speaking to your advisors to help you navigate them and then determine what type of professional trustee you want drawing up appropriate criteria and considering a number of candidates which we think is best done by carrying out a robust selection and interview process just playing devil's advocate here for a minute, thinking about the kind of things that can go wrong. What challenges do people come up against in this kind of process? Ricky, I think there's probably three main uh, issues or, or the, the challenges that, that come up when appointing a professional trustee. The first one is cost. The majority of professional trustee appointments are made with UKDB schemes of assets under management of between 100 million to 1 billion. That said, the schemes often in most need of help are those in the sub 100 million assets under management category. You only need to look at the Purple Book of 2019 to see that 75% of UK schemes are actually under 100 million. 
That's a total of 4,050 schemes out of the entire universe of 5,420. You only need to go down to the circa 10 to 20 million pound AUM schemes to see how fees can really cut into returns. The counter argument from professional trustees is that they can help in building efficiencies and in the ongoing process. Also, I think professional trustees are often less expensive than people perceive. One of our selection exercises that we've carried out this year, which was one of the lowest fees we've seen this year, was around 14,000 from a professional trustee to do professional trustee meetings and the associated governance. Granted, that was a small scheme with only two meetings per year, but it goes some way to show that actually there is some negotiation on, on that fee side. The second challenge we've seen is there can be a reticence of existing trustee boards to try the unknown entity of a professional trustee for the first time. Hence, we do think it is really important to have a clear objective when you're looking for a professional trustee, not only for the sponsor, but also for the fellow trustees, so they can become really comfortable with why they're appointing the PT and at that time. Finally, and maybe slightly outdated concern, was often a professional trustee was company appointed, but they are first and foremost a trustee of the pension plan and must put the needs of the pensioners and deferreds and actors in some cases above all else. More recently, though, we've seen a more pragmatic approach and the understanding that while a trustee is absolutely focused on getting the best outcome for the members of the scheme, they also have a fiduciary duty to ensure the sponsor is heard in all matters of running the scheme so that the journey can be completed together and the efficiencies of a good partnership between trustee and sponsor cannot be underestimated. Thanks. And just to wrap up for both of you, I guess, are there any final takeaways for our listeners? Yeah, I think my final remark would be just to acknowledge that the professional trustee and sole trustee market are growing and, and will continue to grow. And I think overall that this will help drive and maintain high standards of trusteeship going forwards. And I'd say while we're seeing, uh, we've spoken a lot about professional trusteeship in, in this podcast, that is one of a number of governance solutions that you as trustees and sponsors have. And so you should always look at the full range of options open to you. Right. That's great. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today. And I really hope this new recording software has worked. Otherwise, we're going to have to come back and do this all over again. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks, Ricky. That's all for today. So thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guests, Lawrence Hargrave and Nick Brinton. I'll be back again next month. Technically, I guess that's going to be our Christmas episode, but I wouldn't get your hopes up for anything special. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.